You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Hey man, you can be seated and good morning to the 10 o'clock Highland family. Good to see all of you today. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian Jew who was imprisoned in Auschwitz and in Dachau back in the, the early 40s in the concentration camps. And he wrote about the cold and the pain and the fear, and the rats, the starvation, the, the exhaustion of living life in a concentration camp. He wrote in his journal that there tended to be three reactions to those who were in these camps, in these death camps. One, pe- people would either lose all principles and would betray or steal from the people around them. Or, or secondly, they would just give up and would wither away to death. But, but he noted in his journal a, a third type of person, one who is quietly heroic and who made sacrifices and who lived with, with courage. Frankel said in his journal, the difference between those three groups was the level of hope or lack thereof. Frankel was a psychiatrist, had studied under Sigmund Freud. And one day a Jewish composer who was also a prisoner with him in Dachau came to him and said, I've, I've had a dream. And of course, Frankel, being a student of, of Freud, I'm sure his ears perked up on, on a dream, the possibility of helping to interpret a dream. And the composer said, these last several nights, I've, I've had a dream and there's a date over and over again in my mind, March 13th, March 13th, March 13th. And there's this beautiful music underneath this dream. The composer had assumed and had, had rightly told himself or had convinced himself that that meant that the day of freedom for them from Dachau concentration camp would be March 13th. Frankel wrote in his journal, which by the way, later became his best-selling book, Man's Search for, for Meaning, that March 13th came and went and the composer grew so dejected. March 20th came and that, that composer grew deathly sick. March 28th came and the composer became unconscious and by March 30th, he had died. Amazing what happens when you begin to lose hope. Every person in this room, every person in Waco, in our state, our nation, and all the nations are on this quest for hope. And hope is absolutely crucial to a human. But but good news for those who are in Christ Jesus, hope is absolutely accessible for those who are in Christ. It is available to everyone in this room who knows God through the Son, Jesus Christ, or even today calls upon the name of the Lord for your salvation. There is hope. Hope is that fuel that keeps us going. Hope is that certainty that God will come through and that he and his promises can be fully trusted. Therefore, we must guard hope and we must nurture hope as followers of Christ. And this is what we're going to do today. We're going to nurture the hope that we have in Jesus. According to God's word, we're going to see today where hope can truly 
be found. True hope and lasting hope. Isn't that what we're all, what we're all looking for? This is why so many in this room, so many in our nation, they're looking for hopeful things, but they keep looking in hopeless places because we want hope that is true and hope that is lasting. If you're a copy of God's Word, would you go with me, please? The New Testament book of Hebrews. We were there last Sunday. We were in Hebrews 10 last week. Let's be in Hebrews chapter 6 together today. Hebrews deep into the New Testament. Encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word and get there. Maybe share with somebody else or go to a device. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 6 together and see what God has to say to us about hope that is true and hope that is lasting. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to read the passage first. If you've been here for a while, you know the drill. We're going to read through the passage first. We're not going to close our Bibles, and we're going to see what God says to us. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So many translations say he swore on himself, saying, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, he received or he obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and then all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, this is our salvation, we have left the world, we have fled for refuge, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the, here's our word, hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Here it is again, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm not so sure that our 21st century version of God astonishes us or anyone else that that matter. In America's 21st century version of God, God manages to stay pretty close within our expectations. He, he never corrects us. He never disagrees with us. Our, our 21st century version of God is a very well-behaved God and very denominational and very much, well, we've made him like us. We ask him to help us when we're in times of trouble. We ask him to watch over us as we sleep, to help us when we take a test, to, to guide us, especially in seasons of crisis that we might find ourselves in. Honestly, our 21st century version of God is not a God I would care to know. Certainly, I would not tremble in, in his presence. Martin Luther put it this way, our thoughts of God are too human. Wow. I mean, is that true of us? Is that true of me? Is that true of you? Have we reduced him so we can explain him? Have we softened him so that we can understand him? It would be an unwise thing for the people of God today to put human characteristics upon a non-human God. Our thoughts of him are just too human. So let me show you today four things that this passage is saying 
and then show you four steady truths in this passage where hope can be truly anchored. That's actually eight things I know, but four and four just made it sound a little less painful for us today. Here's the first thing for us to see. Our hope is only as strong as our view of God. If you're here today looking for hope, I would ask for you for a moment this morning not to look for hope, but to look to God. And maybe to do some inventory in your own heart, how big is your God? How big, how esteemed is your view of God? Because if you have a little God, you're going to have little hope. If you have a vulnerable God, you're going to have vulnerable hope. If you have a God who is limited, you're going to have hope that is limited. If you have an overlooked God, you're going to have overlooked hope. Our hope is only as strong as our view of God. So Hebrews chapter 6 is making sure in this passage that we see the enormous, unchanging greatness of God, the vast scope of his unchanging, steadfast character. That's what we see in verse 13, the word greater. We see in verse 16, the word greater. We see in verse 17, the phrase unchanging character or unchangeable character. You see, the opposite is true. If you have a big view of God, you'll have big hope. If you understand that you have an undefeatable God, you will have undefeatable hope. If you see that you have an unlimited God, you will have unlimited hope. Our hope is only as strong as our view of God. Second thing we see in this passage, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. Uh, You've already probably lived life long enough to know this is true. The, the, The promise of a shady inconsistent, unreliable person is not a promise that means anything at all. It means nothing. But the promise of a faithful, righteous king who cannot lie, that promise means everything to us. So God is going to keep his promises because his reputation is on the line. This is what Hebrews chapter 6 is reminding us. The foundation for the entire Christian life is the conviction and the understanding, the experience that God will keep His promises. Let me add to that that the foundation of a hope that is true and lasting is built upon this foundation that God will keep his promises to us. If we have a God who breaks his promise, we have no hope. Let's go back into our passage. Look at verse 13. I'll just read the first portion again, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Again, your translation might say, he swore on himself. And this is what he said, surely I will bless you and multiply you, speaking to Abraham. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, he received this promise. He obtained the promise. The promise came to fruition because God gave that promise. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Even today, when you swear on something or swear by something, you're swearing on something that is greater than you. I mean, even think about arguably the most powerful position in the entire world, the President of the United States of America. On his inauguration, what does he do? He puts his hand on a Bible or Bibles, as about five of our presidents have done, and, and they give this oath, this promise. Here's their swearing So help me, God. The most powerful person on the planet, I would argue, has to swear on something greater than than himself, or maybe in the future, herself, and has to swear on God, has to swear on the name and the character of God. Federal judges do the same thing in, in, in our nation. Think about a federal judge who is given a lifetime appointment. I mean, some of the most powerful people in our nation 
I would say underneath the president and vice president, and I would love to have an argument with you on this, I would say the federal judges in, in our nation because they give so much sway to so many, so many weighty, weighty things in our nation. They have to make decisions that you and I have to live under. When they're sworn into office in our nation, you know what they do? They put their hand on their Bible and they say the exact same phrase, so help me God. You always swear on something that is greater than you. So here in this passage, it says, no, what does God swear on? He has to swear on himself. So help me, me. This is what God would have to say. God promises on his own name. God promises on his own character. So Abraham waited for this promise that was given to him based upon the authority and the nature of God. And it came because the promise, listen, was as good as the one who gave it. So consider Abraham with me for a second. Abraham was actually a pagan when God came to him. Um, he was living in, in the land of, of the city of Ur, uh, right in between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. If you took world history or stayed awake during that part, part that was the, the Mesopotamia. And so God came to Abraham, came to him. He was living there with his father, Terah. Uh, Terah was a descendant of, of Shem, uh, one of the, the, the sons of, of Noah. So God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and says, all right, Abram, that was his name before his Abraham. All right, Abram, I want you to pack up. You're leaving. I want you to get everything that you have and I want you to go to a place. I'm gonna take you to a place that you have never been before. Just think about that. That's a big deal. God came to you and and told you that he was going to be moving you, your whole family, your whole tribe, moving them all out and all the way to Canaan, 700 miles away. It's like God coming to you this afternoon saying, pack your bags, you and your family, we're walking to the border of Colorado together. This is what it felt like for Abraham to hear this from, from God. Remember at this point, Abram was not even a believer in God, but God made the initiation to come to him. And then God made this promise to Abraham, I will multiply your family and I will give you a great nation. And out of that great nation, you will bless all of the families of the earth. And he has, because Jesus came out of that lineage and has blessed all the families of the earth. So God repeats this, this promise to Abraham over and over again in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 22, over and over again and over and over again, God says to him, here's my promise to you. Here's my promise to you. Here's my promise. And Abraham believed it. Actually, Abraham didn't just believe the promise. Listen, he believed God. And the New Testament writers, especially Paul, often point back to, to Abraham because he's a perfect illustration of a person of faith who went all in with God. God, you gave me that promise. You gave me that word. I trust you. But he totally trusted God for everything, even in the midst of his unbelievable kinds of adversity, even to the point where he lifted up a knife to slay his own son Isaac and therefore kill every dream and every hope that God had given him, that's how far he trusted God. But he learned that God's promises were just as good as God. Verse 17, verse 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly as if he needed to, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, fled for Christ, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. 
Here's the third thing you can take from this passage. God guarantees his promise, promises on two unchangeable things. You even see the author of Hebrews, whomever that might be, certainly guided by the Holy Spirit, write that, write, write that down, that there's two unchangeable things, two things you need to understand. Here are the two things that are the foundation for every promise that God has given to us. Number one, his character. That's who God is. Number two, his word. That's what God says. So every promise God has ever given to every believer in this room is based on those two unchangeable things, his character, who God is, that's his core, that's his heart, that's his very essence, that's the very nature of God and his word, what, what God has said. little side note you might find interesting, the first four words of Satan in the Bible, did God actually say? The very first attack from the enemy was on the words of God. The very next sentence in Genesis uh, chapter 3 is that um, he questions to Eve the actual character of God. Side note, that was free for you today, but it's interesting to me that the enemy always attacks at those two things, the character of God and the words of God, who God is and what God says. So see here, because the unchangeable nature of God's character and the unchangeable nature of, of his word, God's promises to Abraham could not change. And the same is true for every promise that God has given to his daughters and his sons in this room today. Those promises are still true and yes to us. It's so hard for you and I to imagine something that is unchangeable. Because we live in such a culture where things are constantly changing. I mean, just think about that. Because in politics and in the economy and the emotions that we feel, people, the culture itself is always changing. We've never experienced anything so secure and so solid as God's promises to us. This is why Jesus said, you see it on the screen behind me in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What you and I think are so fixed today, the heavens above us and the earth below us, Jesus said, that's going to pass away, but my words, they will not pass away. No one but God can make a claim like that and keep it. Here's the fourth thing. And lastly, on this portion of the sermon, the promises we find in the Bible are unchangeable words from an unchangeable God. All the words in scripture are unchangeable because they come from the heart of a God who is unchangeable. There's no shadow of turning with him. He is an immutable God who gives perfect, immutable promises to his people. That's kind of what we're seeing here in this passage in Hebrews chapter 6. God's word to us and God's character toward us are unchangeable. Therefore, all of his promises, everything he says to us are always true. So here's, here's my last four things. Here it is. Where do we find then lasting hope? I'll say it again. Everybody in this room and everybody in our city are on a quest for hope looking for something that will fuel them for tomorrow, looking for something that they can build their lives upon, looking for something that they can say is actually certain for them. So where do we find lasting hope? Here's the first place we find it, in God who can't lie. Look at verse 18 with me. I hope these scriptures get burned into your heart this afternoon so that by two unchangeable things, verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Where do we find lasting hope? In God who can't lie. All of us in this room have been lied to before. 
maybe even recently. And you know how it feels, don't you, to be lied to. It, it shifts something inside of you in your thoughts for that person who did the lying. It, it means that the next time they say something to you, you, you wonder. The, the, there's a hint of, of accuracy. Is that, is that true or is that just another lie? We begin to question their, their integrity, begin to question their, their character, begin to question every other conversation we have in the future, but you know what also do? You also look back and think, can I trust all the conversations we had in the past? Once someone has, has lied to you, you doubt them, you doubt their words, their integrity, their character. See, if God's word to us is nothing, then he becomes nothing. The very character of God is at stake in his promises to us. Can you take God at his word? Is he going to keep you from falling? Will he continue that good work that he began in you? Will you find security in God? And the Bible says, yes, there is hope in all of these things because God's character says there is and his word says there is. Look, all morning this morning, in the songs we sang, did you notice a theme? Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness toward toward us over and over again. We, we sang that phrase, the faithfulness of God, and that's one of the, our favorite attributes to declare about God. Some of our favorite songs probably have that tagline in there somewhere. Great is your faithfulness toward us. Oh, great is your faithfulness toward us. You see it in the psalmist. You see it in the book of Lamentations. You see it in the New Testament as well, the faithfulness of God. And I will say, not only has God been faithful to every generation, he's been truthful to every generation. He's been faithful to every generation. And in his faithfulness, he has also been truthful to us. If God lied, he's no longer God. He's the source of, of truth. So whatever he does is right, and whatever he says is truth. Are, are, you, are you beginning to feel maybe a little bit what I have felt all week long preparing for this message? There's some kind of hope production that happens when you're reading these passages because we lose hope. When politicians and preachers and friends and bosses and family members lie to us, when we're lied to, it's discouraging. When we're lied to, it's disillusioning. When we're lied to, it is so disheartening. But just the opposite is true also. Here is a God who cannot lie. Here is a God that you can know through Christ. And he has never and literally can never lie to his people. That gives us courage and confidence and hope. Secondly, where do we find lasting hope? In God who won't change. Verse 17, verse 18. You may have these by memory by this afternoon. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs the promise, the unchangeable character, there it is, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. Where do we find lasting hope? In God who won't change. That word's in there twice, verse 17 and verse 18, unchangeable. Hear me carefully on this. God's not progressing. He's not changing. God is not a different God now than he was in the Old Testament. He's not a different God now than when the church began. He's not a different God now than he was in the 1800s. He's not a different God now than he was last night. God's not progressing. He's not checking the pulse of the voters. His hands aren't sweating with the latest polls. This is the immutability of God. He can't change and he won't change. Most people 
don't like change. They say they're okay with change until they have to change themselves. Have you noticed that? Like we love change as long as we don't have to change. Now, some changes actually are, are good. There's been good changes in technology and in information and in science and in medicine. Some changes we've seen in the last many years have not been good. A decline in, in the morality of a nation, the increase in addictions. I would even say the, the change of social media has, I would say, is, is not a good change. If anything changes, it must either be for the better or for the worse. If a, a change is trying to happen and, and there's not a change for the better or change for the worse, there's no moving of the needle, that's actually not a change at all. It's status quo. There is no change. And so when something changes for, for the better, there is something missing and you add to it you add to the organization, you add to the structure, something is missing, and you add to it, and we would say, oh, it changed for the better. But when something is needed in that organization or in that structure or in that relationship, and all of a sudden you've lost it, we would say there's been a change for the worse. But since God is perfect, he doesn't need anything. Therefore, God cannot change for the better. If God were to lose something, he would no longer be perfect. Therefore, he cannot change for the worse. This is what James is saying when he says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above in whom there is no shifting shadows. There's nothing shady about God. There's nothing shifty about him at all. We have hope in a God who won't change. Where else do we find lasting hope? Number three, in Christ, who goes behind the curtain. New territory. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We talked about this last week. I won't spend a whole lot of time on it. In the Old Testament, deep within the temple was the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and there the glory of God, the brilliance of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, only the priest could, could go in there. He had to get in and get out fast. He, he, he couldn't linger because that is where God dwelt, behind the veil, behind the curtain. And only the high priest could go in and no one else. But now, as the new testimony of God, we now have a new agency or a new agent to bring us into the presence of God. We now have a great high priest, Jesus who performed the perfect sacrifice by his death and resurrection, he has entered into the heavenly holy of holies. And when he went in, he didn't go in and come out. The Bible says he went in and did what? He sat down. He sat down. If you come to my house this afternoon, you'll know where you stand with the Durham family. We come to the front door and open the door and block the door. That's our really subtle hint to you of please don't come in. But if we open up the door, you'll know where you stand with the Durham family as if where you stand with the Durham family means anything at all. If we open the door and say, hey, would you like to come in and sit down? Jesus went behind the veil, went behind the curtain, the place where the priest got in and got out quickly in fear of his own life. Jesus goes in and he sits down because Jesus finished the job. 
And so the veil ripped and Jesus inaugurated this new and living way into the presence of God. Lastly, where do you and I find lasting hope? In Christ who goes there on our behalf. Look at verse 20 with me, the last verse in this passage where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In fact, you can underline those two words, our behalf. Christ has gone there on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a strange name to maybe a lot of us here today, but for those who are hearing this, Hebrews, Jewish people who are reading this or hearing this, they knew exactly who Melchizedek is. In fact, it'd be the same way that you and I would mention George Washington as Americans. Like, we just know who that is. The Jewish audience would have done the same thing. Oh yeah, Melchizedek, he was the one who was a king and a priest. So the fact that Jesus comes in the order of Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 12 means that Christ is the perfect priest and the perfect king. So Jesus opened this way, and when we put our faith in him, our lives are anchored to Jesus who is behind the veil, who has gone behind the curtain into the holy of holies. That's that's security. You see, Christian, that means that I am tied to Jesus within the veil and nothing can ever violate that. Oh, what hope that is. I'm anchored to Christ who is inside the veil of the presence of God. And if you're a Christian, you're tied to Jesus also. And that serves as an anchor for for our souls. So he went in and then I put my faith in him. And I gave him my life, and now Jesus holds my life in his hand, and he'll never let go. And if that's true for you also today, or it is true for you also today, if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you are tied to Jesus, you have given him your life, and you're anchored to Christ, what a fantastic thought that your life is anchored in Christ who is behind the veil on our behalf. And you may say, well, how long are we anchored there? Oh, I'm glad you asked because this is good. Look at verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest. Here it is forever. There's never been a high priest like that forever. Christian, we are anchored to God forever. And he does not lose his own. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are today that in Christ we are, we're anchored to the holy place. We, we have access. We, we belong to him. Jesus, you went into the presence of God on our behalf and we have tied our lives to you and you are the anchor behind the veil. You are our anchor, the, the source of our hope behind the curtain and the brilliant presence of your Father. Our hope is found in in a God who who, who can't lie, in a God who won't change, in Christ who, who goes behind the curtain, in Christ who goes behind the curtain on our behalf. What hope this affords. What hope this produces. Jesus, you are the cornerstone of our hope, the cornerstone of our salvation, the cornerstone of the church, the cornerstone of heaven. Father, we long to celebrate this hope that you have given us. It is true and it is lasting. So now as your daughters and your sons, we sing to this Christ for all that he has done.